Well, good morning and welcome uh, on this spectacular December morning that we have. Uh, special welcome to all those joining us from the 01 and Highland Park and Crossroads. Merry Christmas to everybody. I have on one of my Christmas ties. I have, uh, without ever intending to start a Christmas tie collection, somehow one started for me. Please do not contribute to it. I have so many Christmas ties, I cannot possibly begin to wear them. I can't even keep them all in my closet. So, anyway, I'm wearing one. It is the second uh, Sunday in Advent. We are in this time of waiting and preparation for the coming of Christ. And so we're focusing on Jesus and we're taking a look at different aspects of his character based on uh, his names. And I want to come at this a little bit differently today. Um, I was, you might know, T.S. Eliot sort of famously said, he was the American-born but, but British, um, lived in Britain. He was a poet and an essayist and a public intellectual. And, and he famously said that uh, April is the cruelest month. And so I read this week trying to figure out why is April the cruelest month. And uh, it's because uh, April teases us with nice weather. But it can still turn, and maybe, maybe you spend time in Chicago. It can still snow in April. It can snow in May, for that matter. So he thought April was the cruelest month. I want to start by suggesting, I think December is the cruelest month. And I think December is the cruelest month for a few reasons. First of all, uh, it, it, uh, it overplays its hand. Right, there is a certain amount of joy and goodwill and glad tidings and, and, and Christmas cheer that we're expected to, uh, to manifest or even engineer. And yet, those of us who are on uh, the elder side of 10 or 15 years of age are pretty aware that uh, a present isn't really going to change our life. Right? Maybe it'll change the morning, maybe it'll make for a good day or a good week, but it's not fundamentally going to change who we are or what's going on. And so there's, there's typically a, a disconnect between how happy we're supposed to be in reality on the ground. Additionally, um, December is the month when people who don't like to reflect are almost forced to reflect, if for no other reason to write a Christmas letter. And so I hear from people who say, yeah, you know, I sort of don't like these because I realize that another year has gone by and still I have this job that I don't like. Or still, I, uh, I'm still caught in these cycles of sin or addictions or I'm still single or I'm still in a marriage that's, that's broken. I haven't, we haven't been able to turn the corner on this thing and, and, and heal and, and love each other and care for each other. There, there's, there's just this... There's this awareness that life is not necessarily unfolding as was hoped or as was planned. And December reminds us of that. And of course, December is also a month in which uh, we are more aware than normal of those who have uh, left us. So last, this last week was hard for me because my dad went to Michigan State. My son is at Iowa, right? So, so all this week, I just kept thinking how much fun this would be if I was in between the banter going back and forth, all the smack talk that would be going back and forth between the two of them. So December, you know, when you gather around the table, when you gather around the tree or whatever, you're aware of who's not there. So there's, there's just a disconnect. I learned uh, early on in my tenure at Christ Church that the week between Christmas and New Year's 
it was often full of high drama, right? Because there was just a lot of people who were depressed. There was a lot of fights over money. There, was, there were college students who were home who had been on good behavior for a few days, but now things are wearing on. People are, people are drinking too much. There's, just, there's domestic violence. There's just, it, I just learned this is a week of high drama. December, I think, is the cruelest of months. And, and then this year, we add on top of whatever personal things are going on, we add on top of that just the, 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 the noise, the, the, the problems of our world. There's this shrill political dialogue on both sides that's just unthinkable at some levels. And the, there's the refugee challenges. I mean, not just the Syrians. There's 40 million people in the world that are trying to find a place to call home. And, and then there's just, there's just, you know, if you want to be fearful, there's new reasons to suspect domestic terrorism. And there's all kinds of things that seem to be unwinding. Now, interestingly, as I was, as I was sort of rehearsing that, I was reminded that this sounds a whole lot like the first Christmas. Right? I mean, Jesus is, is born uh, to sort of parents who are Galileans. That's, that's a very subclass of people. And, and those parents are poor. And there's some scandal around the legitimacy of, of his birth. And, and as soon as he's born, they've got to flee uh, out, of, out of their land and go to Egypt as refugees. And, then, and then the country that they return to is, is under military occupation, right? So there's a whole lot of overlap between the first century and the 21st century. So for those reasons, I think that December can be the cruelest of months. And maybe it's not playing out well for you. Well, I'm glad you're here because we have a passage today that is full of hope that is full of encouragement. We've got news that comes to us today that actually can and should change the way we look at what's going around. It doesn't change necessarily the reality on the ground, but it certainly ought to change the way we think about what's going on. So uh, if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, we're in 1 John. Again, this is the series on the names of Jesus, Isaiah 9 last week, the Prince of Peace. Uh, next week, it's going to be Alpha and Omega out of Revelation 22, and then Christ, Messiah. Christmas Eve, we're going to do Emmanuel. We almost didn't do this series because I couldn't come up with two letter E's, two names of Jesus that came up with the letter E. And so after a couple of weeks, I, eventually, I just went to the team that was working on this. I said, you know what, we, we can't do this. It's sort of cute, and it would work, but, you know, there's not two names of Jesus that start with E. And Gar said, yeah, there is. And I go, well, I've got Emmanuel. What's the other one? He says, well, what do you think about eternal life? I said, well, I think favorably of eternal life, but <laughs> eternal life is not the name of Jesus. And he goes, yeah, look in 1 John 1. So I looked in 1 John 1, and indeed, Jesus gets called eternal life here. So um, a couple things just out of the gate. There are some Christmas passages that, that take us back to the first Christmas, right? So you got angels and shepherds and stars and wise men and all that. This is not one of them. This is one that's looking more at what is going on or why the what is going on. Um, secondly, just by way of, of reference, uh, this is, this is, this first John is written by the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. So it's the Apostle John. He was the youngest of the apostles. He's the guy that lives a whole lot longer than everyone else. All the others, uh, you know, Judas obviously is going to end his life. Uh, the other ten, besides Judas, are going to die as martyrs, and they're going to die relatively early on. 
John is tortured and, and he's banished to this island for a while, but he lives a lot longer than the others do. And John, who will write the Gospel of John for the Greeks to try and persuade them to put their faith in Christ, is then later on, just before he dies, he's going to write some letters. And this first letter is written to people who had been following uh, Christ. They're already believers, but life is not going the way they expected that it would go. And so they're a little confused and frustrated. And he also writes to shut down one of the first challenges to the faith, which was a, uh, a worldview, a different religion, a, a, a heretical movement uh, called docetism. And docetism is a subset of Gnosticism, if that helps. So Gnosticism is, is this big category of, of, uh, of ideas that came out of the, the, the belief that we're not saved by Christ's death. But we are saved, we are reconciled to God by having certain information, secret information, which the Gnostics claimed that they had. Um, so you think Starbucks is the first one trying to undermine Christmas. So oh, they changed the cups. Oh, my goodness. Let's uh, protest. Uh, no, the Gnostics are the first ones to say, in essence, that there was no Christmas. Uh, because they're trying to undermine the incarnation and say the idea that, that God becomes a man, right, in order to live among us, love, teach, serve, model, and then ultimately die in our place. That's not the pivot point of Christianity. It's the secret information that he shared with certain people, and only certain people have it. So, uh, you know, the first Christmas sort of Christmas pivots around this idea that though the Old Testament opens telling us that we are made in the image of God, right, we don't really fully know what that means, but at the highest crescendo moment of, of creation, God creates humanity, male and female, in his image, right? So clearly we, we are exalted and we're, we're elevated in some level. The beginning of the New Testament says essentially the opposite of that. We were made in the image of God. The beginning of the New Testament says God took on our image and becomes one of us, the incarnation. And he does it in order to fulfill the promises. He does it in order to die in our place. So the Gnostics said that didn't happen. It's secret information. And the Docetists, who he's writing against in particular, said that Jesus didn't actually ever become a man. He became a ghost. He showed up as a ghost. It looked like he was a man, but he really wasn't. Because there's a lot of Greek influence uh, in the early church. There still is a lot of Greek influence, and the Greeks don't like the physical world. So there's a lot of Greek influence today. Lots of Christians think, oh, heaven is, is going to be this mystical, magical, spiritual, ethereal place. No, 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 no. No, Jesus rose physically from the grave, right? The body was gone, and it ascended into heaven. Heaven is a real place, a physical place, more real than earth. So there's still some Gnostic thinking, but, but in the early church, the Docetists, they said there's no way God could become a man because the physical world is bad. So it just looked like he was a man. And that's important because as we start to read this, we see that John comes out swinging against the Docetists right out of the gates. So 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, okay, this is code for Jesus, 
So we're going to say the Nicene Creed in, in a little bit. And the Nicene Creed, one of the earliest creeds in the church, is going to both affirm the full deity of Jesus. Jesus was fully God. But it's also going to affirm the full humanity of Jesus. And it's going to, it's going to be making the case that he was begotten, not made. Because there were some that said Jesus was the first created being. And no, we're saying, no, 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 Jesus was not created. There never was a moment before Jesus existed as God. Jesus has always been God. So this is code for this truth. That which was from the beginning, Jesus. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. So this is where he goes right after the docetists, right? He says, you say he's a ghost. No, I'm telling you, I saw him with my eyes. I heard his voice and I touched him. (laughs) He was a real person. So this is almost Bob Yarborough, a New Testament scholar, says this is almost a deposition the way uh, John lays it out here. He is, he is going after every kind of evidence that would be accepted in the ancient courts. And he's saying, I saw him, right, my own eyes, I heard him, my own ears, I touched him. First person, tactical evidence. So that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So, First John's opening sounds a little bit like John's opening. Right, so John opens the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So John 1 opens with John writing to Greeks. So the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, say the same thing, but they're writing to different audiences. Their purpose is to try and persuade different groups of people to put their faith in Christ. So Matthew is a Jew, and he's writing for Jews, so he opens with a genealogy saying, look, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. All the prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures in your Bible, Jesus is the one that fulfills us. Here's the shows how he fits right into all the Old Testament books. Luke, we've been saying, is... Luke we've been going through, and Luke is is written for the Gentiles. John is writing for the Greeks, and the Greeks are the philosophers, Plato and Socrates, big ideas. They like ideas and concepts and theory, and they like to talk. And so one of their favorite words is the word word, okay? So the Greeks, one one of their big idea words was the word that we translating word, logos, So they said there's this big, primary, organizing, fundamental, logical, life force, power, higher power, something. And they called it the Logos. So John is writing to these Greek philosophers, theoretical people, and he takes their word, word, Logos, and he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's saying, you're, you, think it's this, you think that there's this logical life force, power, higher power, rational, uh, uh, organizing principle. There is. It's Jesus. Everything came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing was created. He's the one you want to think about. So 
he starts the Gospel of John that way. He writes in 1 John and uses some of the same language. He says, this we proclaim, right? I saw, I heard, I touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. So he's using the same word, word, and he's just expanding upon it just a little bit. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, and we testify, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. John is sort of a deep guy, lots of big concepts here. He's putting a lot, this is dense, this is dense writing. Now, there's a couple things I want to be sure you see before we move on. First of all, um, occasionally I hear from people who say, you know, Mike, I don't know that I believe in Jesus, but that doesn't really matter. I'm a good person. I'm living a good life. What you believe isn't important. Doctrine isn't important. People just fight over doctrine, but doctrine doesn't matter. What matters is what you do. So, um, if I'm not in a good mood when I hear that, I, I say, okay, well, just help me understand. You realize, don't you, that when you say doctrine doesn't matter, that that's a doctrinal statement. So I can't figure out if you know you're talking nonsense or you're just talking nonsense without realizing it. Because you're making a doctrinal claim. So either doctrine matters or it doesn't, but you have a self-refuting statement there. What we believe does, in fact, matter. And what we believe about Jesus matters. And so John is writing to make sure that we get this right. There are people that say, yeah, Jesus, he wasn't really, he wasn't really there. But what's, what matters is, what you, is what's going to matter is the secret information that you get. And John is going to write and say, no, no, no. Right? You've got to understand who Jesus is. And that also comes out in this this next point, because he says, and it's, it's sort of phrased oddly here. The life appeared, we, pro, uh, we have seen it, and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you the eternal life, Jesus, which was with the Father and has now appeared to us. Okay? So, again, Jesus has existed with the Father. There never was a moment before Jesus existed. His birth, the incarnation, is not when his life began. Your life, my life began at conception. Jesus' life did not begin at conception. He existed from eternity past. At the time of his incarnation, karnos is the Greek word for flesh, when he took on flesh, right, through the virgin conception, That's really what we proclaim, not a virgin birth, but a virgin conception, because he bypasses the the stain of sin that is is part of human existence, part of human life, coming from Adam, original sin. He bypasses that. He takes on flesh. It's at the incarnation that he adds manhood to godhood, humanity to deity. Somehow, while remaining fully God, he becomes fully man. And that is... That is so, he is going to be able to represent us in death. So as a man, not just half a man. He's not half a man, half God. He's not God that looks like a man. He's not God in a man's shell. He's not a God, sometimes man, sometimes fully God and fully man. We call this the hypostatic union. It's a big mystery. We can't wrap our arms around it. We've got finite brains. We can't understand the infinite God. 
But somehow, because he is fully man, he is able to perfectly represent us in death. He dies in our place. And because he's God, his death is of infinite value. And so he can die for you, he can die for me. And this is the, this is the plan. The Christian faith pivots around the death of the God-man in our place. And, and what we understand and what we affirm matters. Now, how we live also matters. I don't want to suggest that. But doctrine does matter. And what we have here is this suggestion that Jesus is eternal life. And part of what this means, another sort of deep idea here, but if you sit with the text long enough, part of what John is is arguing with all of this is that love matters also. You see, if, if there is no logos, if there is no organizing force, if there is no first principle, if there's nothing that pre-exists us, if what you see is all you get, right? if you're going to adopt a completely secular viewpoint, then you, you, you can't say that love matters because love is ultimately just sort of chemistry. Right? If, if what we are is just carbon-based biochemical reactions. If we're just a naked ape, if we're just the temporary pinnacle of the evolutionary process, the random exhaust, the exhaust of the random collision of time plus chance plus space, right? if that's all we are and there's nothing other than what we see, then I don't know how you make the case that love matters. Right? In, in that world, then uh, Nietzsche is right. Power matters. But love doesn't matter. But if the Logos exists, if there is something that comes before everything, if there is an organizing, loving God who has elevated love, then love does matter. Now, I'm not, I'm not the only one saying this, right? I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a common understanding. Um, <clears throat> Francis Crick, the... Um, the, the Nobel laureate who, along with James Watson, the, these were the two guys that discovered or figured out the double helix structure of DNA. I, they were Cambridge professors. I've been to the pub in, in Cambridge, a little plaque on the wall where they finally figured it out. You know, shot, eureka, jump up and down, and there's a little plaque there that announces. This is where the mysteries of life were understood, right here for the first time. Uh, so, so Crick is, um, is a secular guy. I'm not, I'm not using that in a, in a negative sense. I mean, he would describe himself that way. And this is what he says. You, your joys, your sorrows, your memories and ambitions are all no more than the behavior of a vast collection of nerve cells. That's all you are. That's all we are. There's, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing to, to your life. There's nothing to love. It's just, you're just responding. It's just chemistry happening in your brain. And that's it. And that's all we are. And this is, Shakespeare gives voice to this opinion in Macbeth. 
right? Life is but a shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour on the stage and then is heard no more. Life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. If everything that we see is everything that is, if there is no God, if there is no Logos, if there is no organizing, loving, first being, then, you know, it's just get what you can. But if there is a God, if there is a loving God, then love matters. And and what you feel in your heart is true is true. Right? Because love does matter. And, and I believe John is making this point. Love pre-existed the world. And uh, by saying this, uh, there is meaning and there is hope and there is purpose to how we live. Now, uh, there's one other big idea here that we've got to see. And that is this idea of eternal life. Uh, the life appeared, we have seen it, we testify to it, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So, uh, eternal life changes everything. And I'm using eternal life to refer to the fact that we're going to live forever. That's, that's the claim that gets made. That's the, that's the promise that is told by Jesus who is eternal life. Now please note, We're not told here that Jesus brings eternal life. The the wording on this is odd. The life appeared, we have seen it, and testified to it. We proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared. So every religion has a founder, has some sort of guide, some prophet, some sage, some swami, some guru, some, some enlightened being who points the path that we're supposed to follow, the principles we're supposed to adopt, the things we're supposed to do, so that we might become enlightened over time. Right? And so they're, they're a guide for us, and they're, they're showing us how we could be reincarnated in a higher state or how we could become enlightened as well. That, that Religions have some kind of founder like that. Jesus is a prophet. He's a priest and a king. But he's not simply that. He is also... A savior. And what we're being told here is it's not saying Jesus brings eternal life, which he does. It's saying Jesus is eternal life. <laughs> right? This goes beyond that. We're going we're gonna to move to communion in just a minute. And, and think about what, what, this, what communion represents, what it symbolizes. I believe that communion is more than symbolism. But think about what it symbolizes. We so desperately need Jesus that we're going to take him into our body. That's how... That's how much we need. That's how desperate we are. Because it's Jesus. It's not the principles that Jesus teaches. It's not the direction that he points. He is a teacher. He is a guide. He is our example. Those things matter. But we're being told here, Jesus is more than that. He is eternal life. He is the Savior. And and coming to faith in Jesus, right? Believing in our heart and declaring with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And, and, and being reconciled to God, confessing that our, we're broken and that there's nobody like Jesus and we want to follow Jesus and that we need Jesus and we're literally going to take Jesus into our body, heading down that path, that, that changes everything because what we're, what we're now saying is that I'm going to live forever 
So, so what's happening in this life that I've been given? These whatever, 25 years, 100 years, 75 years, however many years I have. What's happening in this life is just a small percentage of everything that I'm going to experience. And so if I'm going to go be with God, the God who loves me, the God who has redeemed me, and I'm going to live with him forever, then I want to do with my life, my one and only life, my short life, I want to do things in these years that matter in light of eternity. And even when things are going wrong, even when life is difficult, even when it's December, the cruelest month, even when I'm sad about certain things, there is a hope, there is a joy, there is a perspective that says, I can go through this because this is what's coming. Right? I can put up with this. Think of what God put up with for me. I can put up with this because this is what's coming. And by the way, that this, that eternal life, is actually even bigger than just thinking about eternity. Because what we find in Scripture is the suggestion that eternal life begins now. There's a caricature of the Christian faith that says, pray a prayer, be forgiven, and then, you know, in 20 years or 50 years or whenever, when you die, then God will say, good, you checked the box, you prayed the prayer, so now we can get on with eternal life. No, <laughs> No, eternal life begins now. It, 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 eternal life is a relationship with God that can begin now. That's what Jesus came to bring. And, and when we say, I'm in, right, then we are invited to become part of this, this group that is going to try and live into the promises and values and the fellowship of God and start to live and love and serve in ways that reflect the character of God. So, as I said, John's deep, John's deep. Um, but Christmas matters, right? It, 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 it really matters that he showed up. It changes everything when we get it. And it changes December when we get it. I started reading... Um, Picked up a, a novel by Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers is a British writer, friend of C.S. Lewis's. Uh, she was one of the first female graduates of Oxford. And she wrote mysteries. She wrote other things. She wrote some interesting theological books. But she wrote mysteries, by and large. And she's famous, and you can still see on, you know, cable TV, the British Channel, you can still see these Lord Peter Whimsey Series. She wrote a bunch of Lord Peter Whimsey. He's, a, he's an aristocratic detective. And uh, if you read this series, at some point, um, a new character is introduced. Harriet Vane. Harriet Vane is uh, a British mystery writer, one of the first graduates of Oxford. And Dorothy Sayers would not be, let's just say she wouldn't, find herself on in the cover of any modern model magazines. And she introduces Harriet Vane as being a relatively unattractive woman. So Harriet Vane is an unattractive woman like Dorothy Sayers. Harriet Vane is the first graduate of one of the first female graduates of Oxford, like Dorothy Sayers. Harriet Vane is a mystery writer, like Dorothy Sayers. Clearly, Dorothy Sayers wrote herself into the story. And Harriet Vane, the Dorothy Sayers character, ends up falling in love with and then 
sort of rescuing Lord Peter Wimsey. Which is what God has done for us. He's the writer. He falls in love with the character. He writes himself into the story in order to rescue us. Right? That's the claim. That's the promise. That's Next week we're going to look at this. You don't want to miss next week because we're going to look at how that promise unfolds throughout the entire Bible. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is eternal life. He is the one that makes it all right. Christianity is not this I do, it's this he did. He is eternal life. He come, he really does. Christmas really happened. God became man so that he could die in our place. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for writing yourself into the story and uh, loving us enough to uh, rescue us. I pray for those who are fragile this December, feeling beat up, discouraged. I pray that uh, this promise of eternal life would change things for them. Help us to raise our sights, to look past the day, the week, the month, the next 20 years, to look out across the horizon and to see the promises that you have made and the the things that, that will come our way because of your love and to live in light of those promises. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.